Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. Spirit and what it means to perfect holiness in the fear of God. And our study has been over in Colossians chapter 3. So turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. And we have said that perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord, basically according to verse 5, means to put to death our body, body's members, hands, feet, ears, eyes, etc., to immorality and impurity and passion and evil desires and greed, which amounts to idolatry. We said the picture also was one of taking off old filthy clothes and putting on new clothes. That we are to take off the old sin that is done away with when we become a Christian. Put aside all malice and wrath and slander and abusive speech and lying, etc. But not only must we put off, which is cleansing ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, but we must also put on, which is perfecting holiness, put on the new man that's being renovated in a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And we saw in verse 12 and following, that meant to put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, anyone who has a complaint, as God has forgiven us in Christ, and above all things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now we come to verse 15 in our study. And in verse 15, 16, and 17, we have four more commands that Paul gives us on how to perfect holiness in our lives. As God brings us into a pure body, as He increases the purity in our lives, we need to follow these commands. The first command is let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. The second command is to be thankful. The third command is to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. And the fourth command in verse 17 is, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we will look at those commands this morning. And hope you will take time to open your bulletin and take notes and follow along so you'll have some information to take home and pray over and to obey. First, he says in verse 15, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. Let the peace of Christ rule. Now this peace of Christ is ours in Christ. When we become a believer, we have access to that peace. Jesus promised that peace to us in John 14 when He says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So Jesus said there's a peace that the world has, and then there is the peace that He gives. And they're different. The peace that the world gives is based on outward circumstances. When everything is going right outwardly, everything's going good at home, everything's going good at work, then we have peace. 
That's the peace of the world. But when things go wrong outwardly, the peace goes away. Now, can you control every outward circumstance in your life? No. You cannot control the bad attitude or bad temper your boss might be in when you go to work Tuesday. You can't control that. And if your peace depends on your outward circumstances, your peace is going to be fleeting at best. But the peace that Christ offers is a tranquility of heart, a contentment, a sense of rightness in our heart, an absence of conflict in our heart that comes because we are obeying the will of God. It comes because we are living in right relationship to God. That we are doing what is right in God's sight. Now the conflict may rage outside of you. I mean, it may be horrendous when it comes to the circumstances that you're facing. And it may come because you are obeying God. But in the midst of horrendous circumstances, though the battle may be raging outwardly, inwardly there is a sense of peace because you are obeying God. Now when we get out of God's will, this peace leaves with the Holy Spirit's convicting power. Now Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. He means umpire in your hearts. The word rule there in the Greek language of Paul's day was used also to speak of an umpire, an arbitrator. One involved in the athletic contests, as an umpire is, who makes a decision of what's right and what's wrong. And the word picture that Paul has is that we would be having conflicting feelings and thoughts, probably the thoughts and feelings he mentions in verses 12 through 14. Uh, heart of compassion as opposed to being uh, hard and harsh. Kindness as opposed to being rude. Humility as opposed to being proud. And so he says when this happens, when we have these conflicting emotions or attitudes, then the peace of Christ must rule. The peace of Christ must step in like an umpire and rule the situation. For example, someone insults you. Immediately, you have two conflicting emotions and thoughts going on in your mind. One is to return the insult, to get back at them. The other is to be long-suffering and not return the insult. Now, these two thoughts, these two feelings or attitudes begin to wrestle inside of you. Which one is going to win? Paul says when this happens, this wrestling match is going on inside of you, then the peace of Christ is to move in as an umpire and rule that vengeance, that returning insult for insult out of bounds. And therefore, being long-suffering wins out and takes over. So you act in far balance, and Christ's peace rules in your heart. And you have a sense of contentment, a sense of tranquility, because you have done what is right. So when that wrestling match takes place, the umpire of the peace of Christ comes in and rules which is right. Now this promotes peace in the body of Christ. 
Because Paul says we are called to be at peace with each other. And when we let the peace of Christ umpire in our lives, we will be at peace with one another. So when that wrestling match takes on, uh, takes place within you, ask the question, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do in this situation? And that tells you what the peace of Christ would have you do, how it would rule in your life, how it would umpire, which emotion, which action is out of bounds, and which one is right. And then, by the grace of God, you do what is right. Now imagine how much greater peace we would have in the body of Christ, in the church, if we would follow this simple thing and say, what would Christ do in this situation? What would Christ say in this situation? And then say that. When the peace leaves, we need to stop and see where we have sinned and what is causing the conviction in our lives that would cause the peace to leave. So that's the first command. Second command, he says, be thankful. Verse 15, and be thankful. That's a command. That reminds me of the command in 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, which says, in everything, give thanks. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Now listen to that. In everything, give thanks. That is, in the good and in the bad. In every situation, that God commands us to give thanks. Now you may say, well, how can I do that? I mean, how can you in every situation, good or bad, give thanks to God? Well, first of all, it tells me that it is not an emotion that God is calling on me to have. God never commands us to have an emotion because you cannot control your emotions. You can control how you act, but emotions just kind of come and go. You know, we don't have much control over those. So it tells me it's not an emotion he's talking about, but an act of my will. Now that's something I can't control. I can't control my will. I can't control what I do. So he's talking about an act of my will. I am to give thanks. And it tells me, secondly, it doesn't matter what I feel like. It doesn't matter whether I feel thankful or not in a situation. I am simply to be obedient to God and give thanks. Remember, the peace of God comes when you're obedient to God. So when I find myself in a situation that is bad, that is difficult, that the world would look at me and say, man, that is a tragedy, then God commands me as an act of my will, whether I feel like it or not, as an act of obedience to give thanks to God. And not only does it take obedience, but it takes faith. I can give thanks because I really believe I really believe that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of Christ. So because I really believe that, that God will work in everything, in every situation, God will work to bring about good, and that good is to make me like Jesus, and that's what I'm here for on this planet Earth, is to be conformed to the image of Christ, 
so others will see Jesus in me and want to know Him and come into His kingdom. That's God's goal for you in this life is to be like Jesus. If God's goal was simply to save you, then the moment you got saved, He would take you to heaven. But He wants to conform you to the image of Christ. For the whole world to see, this is a man who was hostile, who was defiled, who was corrupt, and look at him now. He is a man who is like Jesus, loving and kind and pure and holy. Now that's glory to God when that happens. When He takes a man who is, and all of us were like this, when He takes a person who is absolutely bound in their sin, a slave of Satan, and God transforms them to look like Jesus, not only the world sees it, but let me tell you, the demons and the devil see it. And it brings glory to God. And so we give thanks to Him because we believe He's working in that situation. But this thankfulness, I believe, even goes to a deeper level in Ephesians 5.20 when Paul says, For all things give thanks. Now, it's one thing to give thanks in every situation, right? But to give thanks for everything, I believe we're going to a deeper level. You know, it's one thing to say, God, this is a rotten situation, but hey, I know you're working, so I'm going to thank you in obedience. But to actually thank Him for that rotten situation, to say, God, not only am I going to thank you in it, but I'm going to thank you for it. That's a deeper level. That moves us into what I believe is called the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now, you've heard me speak of it before. The sacrifice of thanksgiving. This pleases God beyond what we can imagine. Over in Psalm 69, read it sometime. Man, it was awful. The guy was going through... Man, he said, I feel like I'm sinking down under the water and I can't get my breath. He said, I feel like every time I get above the water just a little bit, I get knocked back down. He says, even my family members can't stand me. They have rejected me. They've turned against me. And he says at the end of that psalm, yet in spite of it all, I will thank you, God. And it will please you, God, better than sacrifices that I could offer. God is pleased tremendously with the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Because number one, we have to sacrifice our mind. Because we don't see any reason to be thankful. I mean, to us it looks absolutely tragic and it looks like it is a rotten situation. We sacrifice our emotions because we don't feel thankful. We feel anything but thankful. We sacrifice our will because the truth is we do not want to thank God in this situation. We are upset about it. But we sacrifice those three anyway and we thank God for it. And it's an act of obedience and faith that pleases God tremendously. And you know the importance of that? You know how Paul gave this command, I think, be thankful right in this chapter on purity and on unity? Because what's the opposite of thankfulness? Grumbling, complaining, 
griping. And what does grumbling and complaining and griping do for unity? I mean, when your family is filled with complaining and griping and grumbling, what does that do for the unity of your family? It destroys it. But when the attitude of your family is thankfulness and thanksgiving, no matter how rotten the situation is, that brings unity. You remember last week we saw Israel standing at the door of the promised land and the report came back and ten of the spies said there are giants out there, the cities are fortified, we can't do it. And what did the people do? They grumbled. They grumbled against God. Oh God, why did you bring us out here only to die? We could have died in Egypt. Our children and our wives are going to be plundered. And they grumbled against God. How much different would that situation have been if once they got the report from the spies, they got thankful instead of grumbling and complaining. And they said, thank you God for those giants. Hallelujah for those fortified cities. Oh man, thank you God. This is great. Man, we just grasshoppers comparison to those big guys over there and those large cities. Thank you, Jesus. Now, how much different would it have been? Huh? Man, they would have marched right in. But instead, they complained, they griped, they grumbled, and God turned His hand of judgment against them. Paul says, be thankful. Now, thankfulness Gratitude makes for peace between Christians. Because when I am thankful to God, I mean deeply appreciative for everything God has given me, then I will not begrudge someone that has more. I mean, when I'm really thankful, say, God, I am really thankful for what you gave me. Then I'm not going to begrudge you when you have more and God's given you more. But if I'm not thankful for what God gave me, and I'm thinking all along, God, why haven't you given me more? And I look over the fence and see what you've got, I'm going to get envious. And you know what envy does for unity, doesn't, don't you? And it destroys. It destroys. So thankfulness promotes unity in the body because I can rejoice with you when you're rejoicing because I am just thankful that God's given me what He has. It also promotes unity because when we thank one another for the kindness that each has given us, it promotes peace in the body. I mean, thank you is always an appropriate response when a Christian has done something for you. It's easy to take each other for granted, but we're commanded to be thankful. And imagine how the peace of Christ would rule in our hearts and in the body and in the family if we were all more thankful and grateful. Next command is to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Now notice it's a close connection between peace and the Word. Verse 15 and verse 16. Now what does that tell us? That tells us we must never separate the peace of Christ from the Word of Christ. You see, peace is a subjective thing. And left to itself, we can misunderstand it. There is such a thing as a false peace. You remember Jonah? 
Remember, he ran away from God and he got in the bottom of the boat. And you know what he was doing during that storm? He was sleeping. He had peace. But it was not the peace of God. It was a false peace. The devil will seek to give you a peace sometimes when you're in disobedience to God because he doesn't want you to wake up and realize that you're in disobedience. Yet the Word, the Bible, is a very objective thing and it keeps us from having the false peace. When you ask the question, what would Christ do in a situation? It's always based on what the Bible teaches about Christ. Not our opinion or what we think He might do, but what would the Christ of the New Testament According to the teaching of the Word, what would He do in this situation? And then I must respond obediently. The Word of Christ is synonymous with the Word of God. For all Scripture is God-breathed. Now what does it mean when He says, Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you? You see the word dwell? It means in the Greek, be at home. It means to feel at home. It's the prefix in and the word house. It means to feel at home as opposed to visiting. Now you may visit many places, but you don't really feel at home in too many places, do you? The Word of Christ is to feel at home and richly so, it says, abundantly so, in your life. Let the Word of Christ feel richly and abundantly at home in your life. Now, how does that come about? How does the Word of Christ feel at home, not just visit, but feel at home in your life? Well, let's think about it. First, there must be great exposure. You know, when you first go somewhere, you don't feel at home there. Like you go on a vacation and your first day you check in. You know, it all just kind of feels strange. You don't feel at home. But the longer you stay, you begin to feel more at home. The more you're exposed to the place, the more at home you feel. I know you've been into the hospital, checked into a hospital room. I mean, that first day, that room seemed so strange. You know, it just doesn't feel right. After you've been there two or three, four days, that place becomes home. It feels all right. You get used to things. Uh, you have great exposure to it, so you feel at home. And the more you visit someone, the more you feel at home there. Well, that tells me if the Word of Christ is going to be at home in my life, then it needs great exposure. I need to be exposed to the Word of God. That's the importance of Bible teaching and preaching. That's the importance of you being involved in personal study of the Word and meditation on the Word, of you listening to tapes of the New Testament and Old Testament, of you taking every opportunity to expose your heart to the Word of God. Because the more exposure there is, the more at home it will feel in your life. Second thing, there must be great liberty. There must be great liberty. You have much greater liberty in your own home than you do anyplace else. I mean, you take off your shoes at home. You wear your old clothes at home. Some of you walk around at home as you wouldn't walk around no place else. I mean, you get down to the real comfortable clothes when you walk around. 
I mean, you have liberty. If you want to walk in and open the refrigerator and get something to eat, you do it. If you want to lay on the floor, you do it. You have great liberty in your home. That's what makes you feel at home there. Well, if you're going to allow the Word of Christ to fill at home in your life, it's got to have great liberty in your life. It's not enough just to study and memorize. You must obey it. God's Word must have the liberty to move through every area of your life, convicting you, exhorting you, admonishing you, encouraging you, strengthening you. But it's got to have liberty in your life if it's going to fill at home. We must submit to its authority in our lives. If the Word of Christ is going to feel richly at home in us, then we must let it have its way in our hearts, in our lives. And that equals obedience. Third thing to feel at home, there must be great love. We feel at home where we are loved. And that's the great thing about your home. You're loved there. I mean, you may not be loved at work. You may even feel like you're hated at work. But when you go home, now that's a place where you should and hopefully do know your love. I mean, those guys at work might not think much of you, but when you get home, your kids think you're the greatest thing going. And that's why you want to be home, because you like that love that you experience when you're there. Everyone should be able to go home and get away from the raging conflicts of the world and be at peace and be loved. And that's why you feel at home there. If the Word of Christ is going to fill at home richly so in our lives, then we must love the Word of God. David said, Sweeter than honey, more precious than a thousand pieces of gold and silver, Oh, how I love thy law. Do you love God's Word? If you want it to be at home in your life, love it. Love it. You say, but I don't love it. How can I love it? Or I want to love it more. Ask God to give you a love for it. Say, God, give me a love for your Word. I want to love it. Because you've exalted your Word according to your name as we saw read earlier today. God's Word's precious to Him. So to love His Word is to love Him. Lord, I want to love it. And I want to love you more. Give me that love. Spend time. The more you spend time with someone that's attractive, the more you love them. And the Word of God's attractive, folks. The more time you spend with Jesus, the more you love Him. The more you love Him, the more you love His Word. So that's how the Word of God can be at home richly in your life. And then he goes on to say, With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now when we're all filled and controlled by the Word of Christ, then we're able to teach and admonish one another. You see, there's a place for mutual teaching of Christians. When the Word of Christ richly dwells in your life, then it is ministering to you through the Spirit, and you can go and say, look, man, let me share with you what God revealed to me in the Word today. Let me show you this truth that God spoke to me today. And we can encourage, and we can admonish, which means to put in mind. And we can ex explain the Scriptures to each other because it is richly dwelling within us. Now, Paul says 
that this was done and can be done by singing. By singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now the early church practiced this. They taught one another biblical truth, theological truth, through singing to each other. Maybe we need to recapture that in our day. Look at what he says, psalms. Psalms, that word, actually means to strike. So it's the idea of a scripture accompanied to music. Singing scripture that's accompanied by music. Probably the striking of a string on a harp or a uh, guitar or something of that nature. The word hymns equals praises to God. Hymns. Now we think of hymns as those songs in our book. But the Greek word translated hymn here means a praise to God. Augustine said a hymn, to qualify as a hymn, a song had to have three characteristics. First, it must be sung to God. It must be praise to God. And it must be sung. So it has to be sung, it has to be a praise, and it has to be a praise to God. Qualifies as a hymn. And spiritual songs, which is just a general word that probably includes both of the others and anything not included in the first two. Now this shows the importance of our songs being biblically sound and accurate. Well now what I want you to see is the next phrase. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to, look at that next word, to God. Singing to God. That means our singing is to God. Not to people. Not even to ourselves. But our singing is to God. Now what's the implications of that? The implication is, when we gather on the Lord's Day, and we're singing to God, not to ourselves not to each other, but to God, then the songs we sing should primarily and utmostly be pleasing to God. That means that whether we have enough hymns or enough choruses is not a consideration. Because when that becomes a consideration, I'm singing to myself. I'm singing what I like, what I want. Well, I want more hymns, or I want more choruses. I want a better mixture. I want more balance. You see, when we do that, we're thinking of ourselves. We should be thinking of God. He's the one we're singing to. The question is, God, what pleases you? What do you desire for us to lift up before you and to you this morning? That means solos and choir specials are not performances before people, but they're an offering to God. That means that singing is not to be a display of fleshly talent, but a demonstration of God's grace in the heart. In fact, the word thankfulness there is actually the word grace. And he's saying singing with grace in your hearts to God. Your singing is to be a demonstration of the grace of God in your heart. That means it's not based on how you feel, 
It's based on the work of God's grace in your life. That means you come on Sunday morning and you've had a rough week. Or maybe you had a disagreement, argument with your spouse uh, on the way here Sunday morning. And so you're just kind of down and kind of blue. And so it comes time to lift up our songs to who? To God. And you just don't feel like singing. Maybe you got a headache. Maybe you're just tired. And so you just kind of stand there. You may not sing at all. Or you may just kind of halfway sing. Now, is that what God's after? Is that what God desires? Is that what the Scripture teaches? Your singing should be a demonstration of the grace of God in your heart. It should be a demonstration of what God has done in your life. And God's grace is infinite, folks. That means we don't sing to God because we feel like singing to God. We don't sing to God even because we want to sing to God. Oh, we happen to be excited, have had a good week, or we've been what we think is blessed this week. We sing to God because God has done a work of grace in our lives. And He's worthy of our utmost praise. Now, you see how it changes things? It means I'm no longer thinking about, do I feel like singing this song this morning or not? But it's, is God worthy to have this song lifted up to Him? And if He is, He's worthy of my best today, whether I feel like it or not. He's worthy of me singing out with all that I have because He's worthy of all praise. I mean, I may feel rotten. I may not want to sing. I may say, man, I am blue today. But that's not the question. The question is, is God worthy? Has He done a work of grace? And we have got to get our worship off of ourselves and on God. Because there is no worship that looks itself. Worship focuses on God. Somebody said, prayer is taken up with our needs. Thanksgiving is taken up with our blessings. Worship is to be taken up with God. And when we come to worship, we've got to get taken up with God. We've got to quit thinking about, do I like this or not like that? Or is it too hot or too cold? Or, man, we've got to just focus on God. We've got to come and lift up as an act of obedience our voices, our praises, our thanksgiving unto God. As long as we are self-centered in our worship, and it's easy to get that way, how do you get self-centered in your worship? You think about what you are getting from it. You know, I mean, I enjoy being in the presence of God. I mean, it is like nothing I've ever experienced before. But the moment I start going into God's presence for the purpose of what I get out of it, I have ceased to worship in its true sense. I have become selfish. I'm saying, God, I want to be here because I want to feel good. God, I want to be here because I want to be entertained with some nice specials. And our flesh likes to be entertained. But that is not the highest worship. I'm not even sure it is worship when we come in a self-centered way. You look at Revelation chapter 4 and 5, the clearest examples we have of worship in heaven, and one thing you'll clearly notice is the focus is on God. 
The ones who worship are not looking at themselves, but they're giving, 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 giving praise, giving thanksgiving, throwing their crowns before the Lord. They're not thinking, now what can I get out of this? Man, am I feeling good? Am I enjoying this? Is this, is this blessing me? They're not doing that. They're saying, you are worthy. We're giving, we're giving, we're giving. Now we have got to move from the position of a selfish approach to worship to a self-giving approach, a Christ-centered approach. How do you do that? Before you come next Lord's Day or when you enter into your personal prayer times during the week, say, God, I don't want to be selfish in this. Lord, I know the tendency of my heart is to want to receive here, but I want to give. I want to give you my attention. I want to give you my thoughts. I want to give you my praise. I want to give you my thanksgiving. I want to give you my song. I want to give you my obedience. I want to give. I don't receive anything today. I just want to give to you. And you can give. That's an act of your will. You can do that. And you may leave this place and you may not have had any emotion at all. You might not have had any warm fuzzies, but that's okay. Because you have given to God of your attention, of your time, of your obedience. And the only reason you receive instruction from the Word, that's not an end in itself, is it? The only reason you receive instruction from the Word is so you can give obedience back to God. So even in the part of the worship time that you might do some receiving, that's not the end in itself. That's just the means to give more. See? So we ask God, help me God, show me where I've been self-centered in my worship. Show me God. I don't want to be that way. Convict me. Try me. Test me so that I might be wholly Christ-centered and focused in my worship. Now he gives one overall principle in verse 17. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Paul takes this broad principle. It's short, it's simple, but it summarizes everything he's said so far. It covers our words and our deeds. We are to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now what does that mean? The name of the Lord Jesus means in the person of Christ. It means who He stands for, His character, what He did. We're to do everything as a person who represents what Christ did and who He is. An ambassador goes in the name of the President. That means he goes in agreement with the character of the President, with the purposes of the President, with the foreign policies of the President, and he simply is there to represent the President and carry forth the desires and wishes of the President, right? For an ambassador does. As an ambassador of Christ, our purpose is to do and to say that which is in agreement with the person and the work and the desires of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul says everything we do, everything we say is to be in the name of the Lord Jesus, I think he has three things in mind. There are three tests you can put to it to see if it fits. Number one, in harmony with Christ's will. Would Jesus say this thing? If Jesus wouldn't say it, then don't you say it. If Jesus would not do this thing, then don't you do it. In harmony with Christ's will, what would Jesus do? Secondly, in subjection to His authority. Our actions and our words must line up with the Scriptures. 
We are to be submissive to God's authorities in our lives. We must not say or do anything in rebellion. And then thirdly, it means must do it in dependence on His power. You must receive your strength from Him. For He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, if you cannot depend on the power of Christ to do something, then don't do it. If you cannot say, Lord Jesus, I trust and depend on you to empower me that I can do this thing or say this thing, then don't say it and don't do it. Because we must do it in dependence upon Him. Now, if we will follow these commands of Scripture, how much more unity, how much more love, how much more purity would abound in our families and in the body of Christ here at Westside. And by the grace of God, we must, we must follow His Word. Let's pray. Father, I look to You by Your Spirit to impress upon each person here the message that You have for them this day. The truth that You desire to speak into their lives. The light that You desire to shine into the darkness in their lives. I trust You to do that this day. And I trust You will take that seed and it will find a good heart. An honest heart. And with perseverance, it will bear fruit. I ask You, Father, to rebuke rebuke the devourer from snatching away the seed of the word but it will take root and it will bear fruit to your glory in Jesus name Amen perhaps today you have come to realize that you don't have the peace of Christ because you don't have peace with God And you can never have peace with God until you stop fighting against God. Until you come to that place that you recognize, first of all, you are in rebellion against God in your life. That you were born that way. That you have wanted your way rather than God's way. And that you have been resisting God by doing what you wanted to do. You recognize that you have sinned and come short of His perfect righteousness. And that you have gone astray. Each, the Scripture says, there is none righteous, no, not one. Everyone has gone his own way. And you recognize that you've been at war with Him. And I want you to know that if you continue in being at war with Him, that the consequences of your war will be eternal separation and eternal suffering fires of hell. That's what awaits you for your rebellion. But He, as a Creator God, demands your obedience and submission to Him. And He comes to you and He says, I've done everything necessary because I love you for you to have your sins forgiven. I paid the price for your sin. I was punished for you. He says, I live the perfect life you could not live. I earned your salvation for you. Now I offer it to you as a gift. Will you reach out in faith and receive it? Surrendering your will to my will, 
casting aside your rebellion and saying, Lord, I no longer want to go my way, but I want to go your way. I want my life to be pleasing to you. I want to put aside any and everything in my life that is not pleasing to you. And you don't have the power to do that until you come to Christ, but He says just be willing to do it. Desire to do that. I want you to be Lord in my life. I desire you to be Lord. I surrender all that I am to all that you are. And I receive what you've done for me. Come into my life. Jesus said if you will come to Him, He will receive you. No matter what you've done. I don't care what you've done. It is not so horrible that the grace of God cannot cover it. Jesus said, all who come to me, I'll in no wise cast any out. Come to Him today. As we sing this song, you step out and come down front and we'll talk with you and pray with you. And you can ask Christ into your life this day. You can go away from here, a new creation in Christ. Your sins forgiven with a place in heaven. If you need to come and pray, you do so. You'll be obedient.